The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. My name is Mark Shaw, and I'd like to start really by reading Luke 15. Luke 15. If you have a Bible, turn there, and I certainly hope you do. I'm just going to read one verse at first, because we're going to get into this a little bit more. But Luke 15, verse 32, says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And we're going to unpack that whole thing. I'm I'm tempted to do it now, but I know I need to slow down and wait. Um, The celebration part of transformation of what we do in biblical counseling is an important part of it. We do a Vision of Hope graduation ceremony, which is fantastic. The girls get up, we introduce them, we give them a purple ring, a ring with a purple jewel in it, and on the inside of the ring there's a word inscribed that kind of characterized their time in the program. So one of the words was dazzled, you know, and she was dazzled by God, by Christ. Then another girl had a word, you know, uh, grace or mercy. I did a word for one of the girls I counseled, and my word was vivify. Vivify, yeah. Anybody ever used that in a sentence in the last week or two? Vivify? Well, it, it means that to, to come alive, like vivid. You know, something that's vivid is, is lively, which is what I need to be right now. I can tell with this group. I need to be lively. Some will walk around, maybe fall off the stage, who knows? And then that'll give you something to laugh at. <clears throat> but vivify, this lady does that. She brings in um, life to places. And so I just thought that was her word. So we have a graduation ceremony. We introduce them. They get up and they share their transformation, what God's done in their lives. And then we celebrate with the best part of it, which is cake. And so we have cake at Vision of Hope, which is really, it's a nice ceremony. You need to come and have cake with us. And just a a real, real neat night. Now then after that, we do an hour of um, what we call fireside chat. It's really like a breakdown, trying to think through... Uh, you know, because all the girls, some are discouraged after actually after a graduation because they're thinking, well, I could never be like her. I could never do that. Uh, so they're discouraged. So what we want to do is we want to have a time where they can ask questions. So they ask questions of the graduates. And this is just an intimate time just for the girls, the staff members, the residents to ask and find out, you know, what was it like when you first got here? Did you ever want to leave? You know? And the answer is always yes, right? Because who wakes up and says, I want to be in a residential program today, you know? I want people looking over my shoulder and watching me. And, you know, even bathroom breaks have an intern standing at the door. So, I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be in a residential program. No one does that. 
And so they're able to ask questions that are very real in that fireside chat and that time. But um, it's a celebration. And uh, that's what I hope that we're promoting and encouraging uh, with people who struggle with addiction is an opportunity to celebrate Christ and to celebrate his work in our lives. Now I have on here a bird. It's not a cuckoo bird, but it was the closest thing I could get uh, to a cuckoo bird on the web. But I don't know if you're familiar with a cuckoo bird. It's very interesting, the family dynamics of a cuckoo bird. Did you know that? They have families. So the mom lays eggs. Are you familiar with birds and laying eggs? I don't have to get into all that. Okay, good, because I probably couldn't. But the mom lays an egg in the nest of another bird. Did you know that? How many knew that? A few of you. Oh, look, some uh, botanists. No, (laughs) zoologists. I don't know. What are you, a zoologist, botanist? I don't know. I'm just being funny with some of these. They're thinking, man, he's from Alabama. He really isn't very smart. Um, I went to public schools in Alabama. Alabama is a 49th state out of 50 in public education, just so you know. So I am the least intelligent person in here. But that's okay, because the cuckoo bird, I knew this, I found this out about a cuckoo bird. Cuckoo birds lay their eggs in another bird's nest. And another bird sits on the egg until it hatches. And it's usually a nest of birds that are smaller than the cuckoo bird, which is kind of a big, ugly bird, really. I mean, I hate to be opinionated, but that's just how they are. And so they're big and ugly birds, and, they, and this little bird hatches, and the mom with her other eggs. So the cuckoo bird finds a nest that already has eggs in it, puts her egg in there. The, the mother bird, not the cuckoo, but the mother bird of whatever nest it is, she the, hatches the egg, feeds the cuckoo bird. But what happens is she gets worms and whatever birds eat, you probably know what they eat, but worms and other things and feeds them and it ends up that the cuckoo bird, because it's the largest bird, it reaches up and it ends up eating most of the food to where the other birds in the nest starve. Some of them even die. And the cuckoo bird, the baby bird, will knock some of the little other eggs out of the nest. I mean, it, it's, it's chaos. I don't know how familiar you are with these cuckoo birds, but there's probably a counseling ministry to cuckoo birds in, you know, that you could be, it could be a lucrative thing for you. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Intervention on A&E, but there was one episode I saw where the mom was giving him money. She was giving him 20 bucks. And... Um, you know, he had some con, mom, I need money for groceries. And, and she, you know, was conned or allowed herself to be. And afterwards, she, she said, so they, the camera crew, you know, part of them went off with this guy. But then one of them stayed on with her. And, they, and the guy in the intervention show asked her, he said, what do you think he's going to do with the money? She said, oh, he's going to buy crack cocaine. I mean, it wasn't even like, I know he's not getting groceries, He's going to buy crack cocaine. I know it, but, but it's okay. I mean, this is a, the way I see him, and I show him love and, you know, all that. 
Well, you know, my heart breaks for people in that situation because, you know, they've raised these little cute little kids. They grow up and now they're in love, the kids in love with the wrong God. They're in love with self and living for self. They're not in love with the one true God. And some Christian families, it's really sad, have children that, that walk away from the Lord. They were raised uh, in such a way that they should love Jesus, but instead they, they don't. They love themselves more. And so your heart breaks for those families that are in that situation because they're desperate. They'll do anything. They want to they do anything to help their loved one. So they relate to the addict in such a way or the idolater. Uh, they either block them, an obstacle blocks them from getting what they want. The enabler, I'll leave that up so you can fill in your blank. The blocks them and the enabler gives them whatever they want. So you're either blocking or giving in that situation. And the motivations are that by enabling them, I get the attention of the addict. By enabling, I get to be in control. I have some sense of control in the situation. I don't have to trust God. Who wouldn't say that? But I can be in control. I can make sure he's okay. I can see him every couple of days because I'm giving him 20 bucks for groceries, quote unquote, knowing that it's really for crack cocaine. And the result is relationships destructive. It's destructive to the addict and it's destructive to the family, to the loved one. <clears throat> An enabler could also be called an accomplice. I wish that when I had written the book, I just called it an accomplice because they're knowingly helping the addict in wrongdoing. Now, I guess some people don't know that they're hurting. That's why they're coming to you for counsel. You've got to help them to see that their choices are hurting the situation and hurting them, hurting the addict. You've got to help them to see that. But they don't want to see it. They don't want to believe it. And how do you make somebody see something they don't want to believe? You just continue to present the truth to them. But in some ways, they're being an accomplice. They're partners in the crime, the crime against God. And the family often accepts deception instead of confronting it. You know, Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. And in my Divine Intervention book, I have an appendix that, um, there's the book there. Appendix A lists ways that family and friends enable the addict. So it's got a list for people to go through. It's very convicting. Uh, that's why my wife, the truth teller, get, you know, helped me write that. Um, <clears throat> she knows she's a truth teller. Um, <laughs> she's saying... He's the truth teller. I'm the grace giver. Um, but uh, th- we want them to see how they're enabling. But all of this is convicting. I know. I mean, my books are convicting. I have people throw them away all the time. You know, write, and write me the email. You know, you're too hard. You're a self-loather. You're a this or a that. 
And, you know, I know they're convicting. I, I know that the language is convicting. But all of that's meant to bring them to a place of repentance and right standing with the Lord. But people don't want the Lord today. You know, they, don't, they want their own reality. I saw a movie called Interstellar. Has anybody seen that movie? Interstellar? There's one back there. Nobody else has seen it? Oh, a few? Okay, well, good. I'm, I've got friends. Um, Interstellar, what, a, what an elaborate way to talk about eternal life. Like, they came up with their own thing and their own, and I thought, man, everybody wants eternal life, but in a, in a different way than what the Bible prescribes. You know, they don't want to go through the only one true way through Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. They don't want to go through him. They want to create their own thing, and they're believing this fantasy. And, and the deal is, the reality is, uh, it's not going to work. That interstellar way will not work. But they go to elaborate efforts to create a different reality. They don't want to know the one true God. So you've got to help them to confess, confess their own their own heart issues. Usually men pleasing is a big thing with family members. Fear of man, wanting to please their children, wanting to make them happy, not wanting them to reject them, and they seek to control rather than trust. Because they, those may be idols in their hearts. Sometimes I do addiction counseling, I never see the kid. I just work with the family. And, you know, if the family will make some adjustments and stop, sometimes then the kid comes in uh, to meet with me. And usually not happy. Yeah, I heard my mom told me you told her to quit giving me money. Yeah, she told me. I'm real happy to be here. I mean, that kind of thing, you know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I told her. Why do you think I told her? Well, because I spent it on drugs. Yeah, you know. But you got to help, help the family members. And somebody asked me, you know, how do I start an addiction ministry in my church? I, I'd start by just helping families. I don't think I'd even target addicts. They don't want to be there anyway unless they're court ordered or you've got Celebrate Recovery or whatever. They want to be there uh, to get those things checked off, stamped or whatever. But help the families. Start having classes and teaching. Use divine intervention. Use... Uh, Jim Neuheiser's got a great book, uh, When um, Good Kids Make Bad Choices, or something like that. I've, I used it. I think that's the name. Is that the name, Jim? When Good Kids Make Bad Choices? Yeah. All right. I got it. One of them. Uh, I used that book a lot in helping families because, you know, it's heartbreaking. Uh, so reach out to family members, and then maybe you'll get opportunities to help the, the people uh, who are addicted, but help the family members first and help them with their idols, their heart desires, because they need help in that too. They've got some sinful heart desires as well. Love Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So you want to lead people to confession because if they conceal it, if they hide it, they're not going to prosper. But he who confesses, that's the mouth and forsakes, that's the action, will find compassion or will find mercy. They won't get what they deserve. You confess it and forsake it, word and then deed, you will find mercy. 
Love that verse, Proverbs 28, 13. So teach the family to respond to idolatry. How do they do that? Well, they have to see that enabling is sin, Ephesians 5, 11, openly rebuke. It's a command to openly rebuke sinful heart attitudes and outward behaviors. It's a command. You can't just wink your eye and say, yeah, go buy groceries with this. You got to openly rebuke it. And it's hard. Help them to identify how they can respond differently in the put on. You know, what can they do differently instead of enable? What are some choices there? What are some things they can do? And still show the grace of God. That's the trick, right? I love you. And because of that, because of the choices you're making, I can't participate in this with you any longer. But I love you. And enabling is sin. Learning to respond as Christ would is the joy of every Christian. And we confront by speaking the truth in love. It's a call to repentance. And just about every session is that way. I mean, yes, there are people we're dealing with who are suffering, and we want to comfort them, we want to encourage them, but there are people that we're dealing with who need to be called to repentance, and that's a good thing. It's positive in that they repent. And then for 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, there's that word again, gentleness, Correcting those who are in opposition. This is the confrontation part. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what we're doing when we confront. When we confront by speaking the truth in love, it's a call to repentance. It's a, it's a gentle rebuke. A gentle call to help them to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And it's always negative when when they're called to repentance and they reject. Just had that happen not long ago where a girl calling to repentance, she said, I just want out. I want to quit. And I want to be an atheist. I've explored the claims of Christ and I found him wanting and I just want to live my life. And that's heartbreaking, especially if you've invested a lot of time counseling, a lot of energy, trying to encourage this person and and calling them to repentance, but they reject. But here's what we know. It's clear. It's clear where she stands. She's not a believer. So now we know. We had doubts. We worked with this girl for a long time. I'm not giving a lot of details because it's being recorded. We worked with this girl for a long time, and she finally said, I just want to be an atheist. I want to quit. And we knew right then, okay, that's where she is. Always wondered, why didn't she get this? Why isn't she, you know, why isn't this settling in? Uh, But she was not a believer. So it it wasn't resonating in her spirit. She didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of her to help her to understand what we were teaching. She couldn't understand biblical truth in a way that was personal, relational with the one true God. 
She could understand it and dissect it and regurgitate it back, but it wasn't in her heart. Does that make sense? So confrontation is what we do. In Mark chapter 10, 17 through 22, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked Jesus, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You think about Jesus walking and a guy runs up to him, gets down on his knees, which is what you should do when you come face to face with Jesus, right? Jesus never rebuked people for worshiping him. And the guy gets down on his knees and says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Meaning, you know, you're thinking of me as another rabbi. Why are there good people and bad people? If you're thinking of me as a good teacher, as just another guy, why would you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, he's saying, I am good. I am the the God you're talking about, but this guy's not getting it. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not, not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. <clears throat> and then he says to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Kept all these things from my youth. And looking up at Jesus, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now I left out a little bit of this because I want to I emphasize something here. You know, you can be the best biblical counselor in the world, but the Holy Spirit is not operating in your ministry uh, it's all for naught. You know, we got to cry out to Jesus. And so Jesus says to him in verse 21, he looks at him and he loves him. And he really confronts him with the hard truth. You lack one thing. There's only one thing you lack. That's, that would be good news for me. I don't know about you. If Jesus said to me, you lack one thing, I'd be like, whew, thank you. But then he would say, everything. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, okay, I get it now, Lord. Um, <laughs> you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. In other words... Go sell it, get rid of all of it, everything you've worked for, everything you've done, all your good works, get rid of all that and give it to the poor, make it useful. But then come follow me. He's not saying come be homeless, but he's, he's saying I'll take care of you. I'll take care of what your, your real needs are. Follow me, become one of my disciples. This is a call to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. You know, you read the Bible and you think, oh, yeah, I would certainly follow Jesus. I would, you know, um, well, this isn't attracted to this guy because of all his great possessions, as verse 22 reveals, disheartened. So this guy's response to, the, to Jesus is not a response where he is repentant 
And where he's encouraged, he's responding to Jesus disheartened. It means he wants to quit. He wants to give up. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he is confronted by Jesus. Imagine you're counseling someone, and their response is, I want to quit. I'm going to give up. And they turn away from you, turn away from Christ, ultimately, but they go away from you sorrowful. They're crying. They're heartbroken, and they want to quit. Now, how about that for a lucrative biblical counseling ministry, right? I mean, you know, you're not taught this verse a whole lot, but this is what you see in biblical counseling quite often. People get disheartened. They want to quit because of what you, how you counseled them, and they go away sorrowful. And they talk bad about you, right? I mean, I have somebody right now. She's, well, I, we're, we're filming this. Anyway, just gossiping and, and all this stuff, and it really, you know, it's upsetting because you're trying to help them. But uh, is really angry, you know? That lousy Vision of Hope program, you know, they didn't do nothing but blah, 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 you know, whatever. And, and I get it. You know, not everybody has a great experience. But here's Jesus ministering to the heart of this guy. You lack one thing. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. I, I want you to follow me. It's a call. And instead of saying, oh, Jesus, yes, what does he do? He, he, he wants to quit. He turns away from Jesus sorrowfully, and the Bible says, for he had great possessions. Or did great possessions have him? That's where his heart was. And then Jesus looks around in verse 23 and says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So sometimes biblical counseling is discouraging if we're looking at it just in the natural. But you know, Jesus did nothing wrong. Sometimes you counsel and do nothing wrong, but that's the response. So I hope that that encourages you to be bold, to to lay it out there. I mean, you don't want to be unkind, but you want to be bold with the truth. Because that's what people really need. They need the truth. You know that show, um, I guess it's coming back now, um, Simon Cowell, what was it, American Idol. Yeah, I don't know why I could think of that. American Idol. People loved that show back in the day, and they loved that Simon Cowell guy, or they hated him, but he was always truthful. But he never said the truth in grace and in, in, in love, but he was always truthful, and he told people what he thought. And in some ways, it was refreshing but in other ways, it was very hurtful. We don't want to be like that guy, but people need the truth. And you and I know the truth. We can share the truth. So we don't want to be like Simon Cowell. We want to share the truth in love, but not just share love with people, not just give them hot dogs and feed them, but to share truth with them. I don't know where hot dogs came from, but anyway. <laughs> I don't even like hot dogs. It's a shocker. Either response is a work of God and the responsibility of the addict. You're either one, a positive response or a negative response. It's a work of God. It's responsibility of the addict. You're simply a messenger. So I don't get caught up in results. 
you know, we have a graduation rate at Vision of Hope. It's 30% of the girls that come there graduate. Usually graduation, it takes about 18 months. And it's a celebration when they do. But there's 70% of our girls that don't graduate. But that's not why we do it. And I am not responsible for that, you know. We do our best. We try. But ultimately, it's between them and the Lord and we're doing our best. Sometimes we do fail, for sure. Um, but, you know, I just have to be settled in that. I'm doing my best. And am I learning things today that 10 years ago I didn't know? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what's great is God is patient with me, and he's using me. And he even used a donkey, right? He spoke through a donkey, so he can speak through me. I'm not much different than a donkey in a lot of ways. All right. Number three, I want you to see the impact of how one choice can impact thousands, yay, millions. Let's play Trivial Pursuit for a minute. Who was involved in the first recorded episode of drunkenness in the Bible? Who knows? Noah. Noah. Very good. Yeah. Saw some hands and heard some Noah's. Good. Noah. Genesis 9, 20 through 22. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Rather than covering up his father's shame, he... He made it even more shameful. And then the, the curse was on Canaan. And we don't know specifically what went on here, but a couple of lessons here. One is alcohol almost always has other attending sins. You know, alcohol and drugs. There's almost always sex involved. <clears throat> Not always, but I mean, a lot of times it's that way. And shameful types of things. And that's what happened here after an episode of drunkenness for Noah. Not only was he impacted, but his family was impacted, right? It it ended up bringing a curse upon Canaan. And then it involved the other, all three sons. And all of this happened after the ark. After they were saved. I don't know if you've been to the ark in Kentucky, but it's, it's glorious. I've been twice. And to go to that ark, are you familiar with that? They built it in Kentucky with Ken Ham's ministry. And it's just an interesting thing to see and how they've explained things. And you say, oh, okay, I see how this can work. I get it now. And it took a long time to build that thing. It's very interesting. If you ever get a chance to go, I know we're on the other side of the planet from Kentucky. But um, um, so it's not a day drive for any of you here. But, uh, or maybe it is for some of you who are visiting. But I would encourage you to go. But this is after they've been saved by the ark. So think about that. Noah begins to be a man of the soil after he's already been rescued and his family's rescued from all of the wickedness, the great wickedness that was in the world. And you'd, you'd have to, you'd almost think, well, wouldn't Noah, of all people, why would Noah do this? Why would Noah... Uh, become a man of the soil and plant a vineyard and drink and get drunk and lay uncovered in his tent and whatever else is going on here. So it was after his rescue. And then the second question in Trivial Pursuit, 
who was involved in the second episode recorded uh, episode of drunkenness in the Bible. Who was that? Lot. And we have it here in Genesis 19. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. This is right after he's been rescued, not by an ark, but by the fire and brimstone that hit Sodom and Gomorrah. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. He didn't go to the place God wanted him to go, by the way. He went kind of to a little place, a small place. He, he went to his place. God told him to go all the way, and he, he didn't go all the way there. He went to this little cave. <clears throat> That's just an interesting side note. Verse 31, And the firstborn daughter said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after uh, the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. And that's repeated with both daughters. And so they are complicit in, in encouraging Lot to get him drunk. And he's, he's drunk and he lies with his daughters. I mean, it, it's terrible. It's incestuous, sexual abuse. I, I don't know what you want to call it. In some ways, Lot is out of his mind, but he's still responsible and you know how you want to think about that is um, maybe different but I just think Lot had a, a part in this that he's culpable for and, and his daughters did too somewhere along the line whether it was drinking or whatever but here's the powerful thing about the Bible and about shame as we talked to, as Ed talked about last night both Noah and Lot are mentioned as righteous Righteous men. Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And after that came his drunken time. But even 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man, this is the second time he's called Lot righteous, and this is after the events with his daughters, lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul three times over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You're going to tell me the Bible's going to write about Lot in a righteous, as a righteous man. Well, what, what is he righteous for? We know he's trusting in Christ alone. The future Messiah for them, for us, we're looking back but Lot was looking forward to the coming Messiah, as was Noah, and their faith was in Christ, <clears throat> the coming Messiah. And they're mentioned as righteous men. And I think the lesson is we want to be careful to always label drug addicts as unbelievers, because some people struggle with addiction. It's, it, if, if you're taking heroin into your system, the heroin doesn't go in and go, oh, I'm in a Christian's body. I don't need to act in here. I mean, I don't have any power. What do I do? I mean, thankfully, women can still experience uh, pain-relieving epidurals and that at childbirth, right? So it's not like drugs enter the system of a Christian and say, oh, uh, I can't operate in here. This person's a Christian. I mean, if you take a, a strong drug like an opiate or whatever, it's going to have an effect on your body 
Christian or non-Christian. So I think we want to be careful about labeling people because a lot of people make fleshly choices as Christians that make them look like unbelievers. We can still share the gospel with them. We still want them to repent because Christians still need to repent. But here's Noah and Lot and Noah's choice to get drunk led to a curse upon his grandson Canaan and then Lot's daughter's choice to get him drunk and his complicitness in that led to a curse upon his grandsons. So you have Canaanites, Moabites, and Ammonites were all, all birthed and cursed by this and they plagued the Israelites for hundreds of years. So we're looking at basically three moments in time, three choices that end up creating consequences for hundreds of years and thousands, yea, millions of people. So there are always far-reaching consequences, far-reaching consequences to sin, to any sin. These are just addiction ones. So don't let your counselees minimize a little marijuana, a little of this, a little of that. It's no big deal. Uh, it is a big deal, and it can have far-reaching consequences. doesn't mean it has yet, but we may be on that pathway. And then i got to tell a joke. You know, you got Canaanites, Moabites, Ammonites, the Mosquito Bites, the Bagel Bites. I mean, there's lots of them in the Bible, right? I just love that joke. You know, children like it better than adults, but I love that joke. Five-year-olds love that joke. <clears throat> I'm just telling you, you know. All right, biblical counsel from Luke 15. Now, this is the passage I use, and I, I want you to turn there. Luke 15. Luke 15. We just read one little verse about celebration. Luke 15 is great to use with family members. I'm going to show you how I use it and uh, help you to use it as well. So Luke 15, verse 11, just in the beginning. And he said, this is Jesus. He's teaching. And he's teaching to the, you know, the, the religious people of the day. They're really this older brother. And then the younger brother is representative of the people who are you know, recognize their spiritual poverty. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. In other words, give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. Because I could spend your money better than, than you can, Dad. Give it to me. And that's what he's saying. It's a scandalous thing to say. But then the father's Reaction here is scandalous too. And he divided his property between them. So he went ahead and did it. So you fill in the blank is wishing the father was dead. He viewed his father as an object, an obstacle blocking him from his desires. I call it an entitlement mentality in, in some of my other books, Addiction Proof Parenting and the Relapse Prevention books are where I talk about that. 
an entitlement mentality. I picked that word because it, it's not just pride. It is pride, but it's pride and you got to give me what I want because that's what idolatry is for the drug addict. So that's why I, I call it that. And that's how he's viewing his dad here in verse 12. And often at this point, I mean, it's just best to just let the addict go. And that's a, that's a hard place to be. Now, if you decide, that, well, and the verse I give here on the screen is Proverbs 22.10. Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and honor will cease. Strife and honor will, dishonor will cease. Excuse me. Dishonor. Because this person is acting even worse than a drug addict. They're a scoffer. They don't want to follow your rules. They don't do what you say. And so the father says, okay, if this is how you really feel, you wish I were dead, here's your money, go. Go. And, they, and then the Bible continues in uh, Luke 15, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son, it didn't take long, did it? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey. Where'd he go? Right next door? into a far country. He got as far away as he could. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He spent his entire inheritance on temporary, temporal, luxurious pleasures. He bought the biggest TV screen you can buy. I don't even know how many inches that is anymore. Was it 72, 80? I don't know. I want one. <laughs> Ooh, did I just confess that on national TV? But that's what he wanted. Temporary, luxurious pleasures. Who knows what he spent it on? I call that the consumer mentality. It's tied into the entitlement mentality. Because not only do I want and think that what you have belongs to me, give me my inheritance, but now I'm going to spend it the way I want you know, I'm going to consume it, meaning I'm going to use it all up. It's going to be all gone because it's mine. And it, it should be mine anyway. I'm such a good person. That's the mentality behind this. And so then verse 14, and we had spent everything. So now he's broke. He spends it all. A severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So not only is he broke, but guess what? Other people around him that he used to mooch off of, that he used to beg, that he used to get to enable him, now they're poor. They're out of money. They're out of at least ex excess money. They don't have a lot of uh, extra capital to give him. And so this famine arose in the land, meaning no one had any extra to give, even to a beggar. And right here, I often think about what I call victim mentality. The mindset of, you know, I've, I've gotten all this money. I've spent it all on what I wanted to spend, and it's not working for me like it should. And oftentimes, this is where people develop a victim mentality of, well, this has got to be somebody else's fault. I'm doing what I think 
is right and what I think works best. And so they get to where they think about it. And if you think about a victim, there are true victims. But when you think like a victim, and that's what you have to confront in drug addiction counseling, you, you can't let them think like a victim that you know, out came this golden calf kind of thing where it's, you know, they use passive words. We fell out of love. And they, they think like victims. You can't allow them to do that. You've got to hold them responsible for their part of it. You've got to put that on their shoulders. They need that. And um, if they think like a victim, here's the thing. If, if I think that um, you know, it's your fault or my parents' fault or my wife's fault or my kid's fault and that I need the drugs for myself... Then and, and, you know, after all, I'm a victim. Really, what they're thinking is, really, you're the problem. You need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. This is why the victim mentality to me is so important at confronting counseling. you got to listen for that. Because people love to blame everything, everybody else but themselves. And in Genesis 3... What's key to remember there, you know, Adam, Adam blames God and his wife, right? This woman that you gave to be with me, this was your idea, she gave me fruit of the tree. But then he says three key words. This is what you want to hear in counseling. But then he said, and I ate. You got to get people to say the and I ate. You got to get them to say, and I did it. I'm wrong. The buck stops here. You can't let them think like victims. If they're not true victims, I'm, of course, that's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so does he repent right here in verse 14? The answer is no. He's broke. People around him are broke. And he begins to be in real need. But it's just the beginning of need. He began to be impoverished, meaning he becomes a beggar. He had nothing left because he'd spent it on luxurious things. So what's he do in verse 15? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And really hired himself out is probably not the best translation. It's more like attached himself. Think about a leech. He, he, he leeches on somebody. So he didn't hire himself out. He, he just leeched on somebody. Maybe even human trafficking. Maybe he became somebody's property for them to use, to work to death, to use for sexual exploits. It's like human trafficking problem today. So he goes, he attaches himself to a citizen of that country who does what? The Bible says he sent him into the fields to feed pigs. I don't have to tell you in this room what Jews thought about pigs, right? What did Jews think about pigs? Unclean, nasty, dirty animals. You think this guy, I I think this guy's trying to get rid of him. (laughs) You know, he's attaching himself, he's leeching on him, and he's like, you know, man... Why don't you go out and feed the pigs? He's trying to get rid of him, I, I think. But I mean, that's me reading into it. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And the human body cannot digest. He's longing. This isn't just some little desire. He's longing. And he's, he, this is looking good to him. And then look at the next 
phrase at the end of verse 16. And no one gave him anything. That's where I'll have, when I'm doing this in counseling, teaching this, and I, and I use this a lot, but I'll have the family read that over and over. And no one gave him anything. And no one gave him anything. And no one gave him anything. And I'll have it read it 10 times. So they finally say, okay, I get it. I don't need to keep giving him. I don't need to be an enabler. That's, that's why I have them read it. No one gave him anything. And this is a parable. This isn't thus saith the Lord. I mean, you know, if, if some families still want to disciple and work with a drug addict, I'm okay with that as long as they're doing it in, in faith. Not in fear, but in faith. But if they want to drive the scoffer out, cast the scoffer out, and they do that in faith, I'm okay with that. Don't do it in fear, but do it in faith. Because at the end of the day, they're going to feel guilty either way they go. I drove him out and he died. I should have just helped him a little more. That's how the family feels. Or I kept working with him, kept working with him, and I ended up, he ended up dying anyway. I wish I had cast him out. So they feel guilty either way. You've got to help them to understand the gospel and the forgiveness of God. And uh, it's very hard. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking stuff that we're involved in, that God's called you to do. You can't run. You know that? You can't run. God's called you all to do this, all of y'all. That's what we say, all of y'all. All right, so then next part of this, he attaches himself I really think implied there he's a victim. He's thinking like a victim. And then he began to be in real physical need and hunger. And no one's given him anything. There aren't any enablers. And that's, that's where he starts to begin to look elsewhere. Modeling the Father. Now let's think about the Father for a minute. Ephesians 5.11. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The Father is representative of God in this parable. And the Father let the Son go. He did so lovingly. Notice he was looking for his Son's return in verse 20. And he's letting the Son go. So it doesn't mean he's quitting. He's stopping praying for him. He's not praying for him. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean he's not trusting God or turning to God in prayer and Bible study and trust, but he lets his son go. And he's looking out to what God might be teaching him. And for us, that's the thing. What, am I, what is God wanting me to learn here? The only real failure in this situation would be failing to please God. We want the family to have hope but not false hope that the son will ever repent. He may not. Because only God can save. Only God can change the heart. But the, the thing is, how can I succeed in this hard situation that God has me in? How must I pray in order to keep my heart from hardening? That's another danger with family members is their heart hardens. A family member really does repent and really does turn, and then they still don't want to have anything to do with them. That, to me, is a tragedy. That's why we celebrate transformation and, and graduations at Vision of Hope. Because we want 
We want this to be a glorious occasion. So parents may give clothing or groceries and cash and cosign and that kind of thing, um, but they, they need not to do that kind of thing. They, we want them to change the locks if they have to. I mean, they may have to take desperate me- measures, but not chase after the son or the daughter who's the prodigal and text them every day and, and, uh, and just try to chase after them, trying to conjure up to be their Holy Spirit to make them change. That's not the goal. Instead, it's learning to trust. And then the parable ends with this. But when he came to himself, see, no one gave him anything. He gets to a place of loneliness and he is not able to fix it. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm perishing here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven. And before you, he didn't say, I have a disease or it's your fault, the way you raised me. He wasn't on Prozac. If he'd been on Prozac, he'd still be in the mud with the pigs, right? Because he'd feel better about it. And I know I named Prozac, but whatever antidepressant medication just makes them feel better about the mud and the pigs. Sometimes it doesn't allow them to experience the hard consequences that they need to repent. So he says, Father, I have sinned. Against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose, came to his father, and while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's God. That's the compassion of God. That's what can be in the family members when you're working with them. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, restoring him to sonship and not keeping him off like a hired worker, but he's a son and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate It's forgiveness for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his family began to celebrate. And finally, the repentant addict. I mean, that's what we want to see. And it can happen. He comes to his senses. He looks down at where he was in a pig pen, starving. But he looks up, remembering his father's love. It's the kindness of God that's meant to lead us to repentance. Romans 2.4. It's God's grace and mercy and love is what we're relying on. That's what I'm relying on in counseling. I need God's grace, his mercy. I need him to show up, so to speak. And so that's the the fruit of repentance and that I'm looking for are really three things. I'm looking for responsibility, gratitude, and submission. If I'm hearing someone who's taken responsibility and I ate, they're thankful, gratitude, and they're submissive. Look, I'll do whatever you say. My way has not worked out. I want to submit to your leadership. I want you to help me. I want to willingly, submission is always willful. It's not something forced. They're submitting to someone else. Then I know they're repentant. And what family members do is they they get excited. A phone call. Oh, he called me today. And they think that's repentance. 
But it's not. They're just calling to get more money. Or they're just calling because they're desperate. And so, oh, I'm sorry about that. And uh, that's, uh, the family's tendency is to want to jump. Jump at the first sign of what they think is repentance. But you don't want them to do that. Now, we don't have time to get into the rest of this. I gave you a lot of notes. I knew this would be a long section. But um, it ends very poorly with this older brother. The older brother, his attitude. See, he's really the prodigal son because he thinks he's self-righteous. So you've got a lot of you've got a lot of family members who are angry and upset because they've been doing everything right. And you didn't even give me a goat to kill to celebrate with my friends. So there's a root of bitterness in him. And so you want to use this in counseling in a way to help them to guard their hearts from bitterness. And working with families can be very rewarding. Uh, Especially if they begin to live in a way that they act in faith and not in fear. That their focus is not on this kid to get right or this sister or this brother or this parent but their focus is on Christ that's the whole goal and your job is to help focus them there and keep them there and I love Romans fifteen thirteen. may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope hope is the one thing as biblical counselors we need to instill in our counselees the family members but it doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord. And they can abound in hope because of his awesome power. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not short of hope. That you are not short of power. That you are capable. That you're teaching us to depend on you, not ourselves. Help us to be faithful as we Uh, counsel those with family members who are struggling with addiction. Help us to be gentle with them, but confronting them if they are living in a way that is independent of your best for them, that is sinful. Lord, help us to, to confront in love and help the family members, Lord, not to give in to enabling, but to, to really strive to try to help the addict to repent, to get to a place of utter need, utter, utter, that, that they see their utter need for you, Lord. And may we share and be a part of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org. 